When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 847. This episode brought to you by Loot Crate. The monthly subscription box service for epic gear. Uh, this is, these are pop culture items. These are gifts to yourself every month in the future or gifts to a friend. Maybe it's not always about you or maybe it's about you and your friend. Who knows? But for less than $20 a month, you get six to eight items that include licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. It's kind of like a friend who knows what you love. And maybe that friend is you. Maybe it's okay to be your own friend. You know, be nicer to yourself. That's what I always say. So give yourself the gift of Loot Crate. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific each month to subscribe to receive that month's crate. When the cutoff happens, it's over. You can't get that stuff anywhere else. So make sure to head to LootCrate.com slash Nerdist. Enter the code Nerdist for 10% off any new subscription. If you're in Canada, Australia, the UK, no problem. More info on their site. Uh, It's more than a subscription service. It's a community of fans who share their experience and interact with each other around the unboxing of each month's crate. They're going to guarantee you $40 plus in value every crate, sometimes a lot more. So check it out. It's, you know, Marvel stuff, Star Wars stuff, Walking Dead, and these things that they've sent out in the past, Zelda, many, many, many more. So uh, Loot Crate, thanks for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast. Let's head over to the community corkboard. Uh, First of all, The Wall on NBC, Tuesdays at 8, 7 Central, is now in full effect. The show is joyous, it is heartbreaking, it is wonderful, it is positive, it is upbeat all at the same time. I absolutely love doing it. Um, and uh, yeah, we're in new episodes, so watch it every every Tuesday on NBC. And, uh, and laugh and cry along with me. And, oh, can I also just mention this? Well, I guess I can. Because even if you say no, I'm already recording it. Nerdist Podcast Live SF Sketchfest, January 21st, 10 p.m. Nathan Fillion is our guest. Uh, myself, Matt, Jonah, uh, Fillion will be there. We're at the Curran Theater in San Francisco. And uh, you can get tickets at sfsketchfest.com. So check that out. The crew is back, and we got a guest that is relevant to your interests. So come join us. Uh, also, RJ Pratt writes, My buddy Chris is the president of Bikers Against BSL, uh, which is breed-specific legislation against dogs like pit bulls and Staffordshire Terriers. They are a nonprofit motorcycle club that fights BSL across the country. And every year they release a calendar to help raise funds so they can keep, uh, keep uh, fighting the good fight for this cause. The calendar features pit bulls and models for every month. Uh, the calendar is even better because every dog featured is 100% adoptable. And uh, so go to bikersagainstbsl.org to find out more info. Also, Matt Waldron writes, 
Hashtag draw every day 2017 is a simple drawing challenge people can pick up uh, whenever they like to draw every day. It doesn't have to be finished, polished, any, uh, of any medium in particular, or even any good. And it's just kind of, it's, Matt really wants a way for folks to share their work and struggles and then be able to look back at their year and see what they accomplished. To find Matt, uh, uh, look him up on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, Instagram is Matt C. Waldron, W-O-N, Matt, Matt C. Waldron. And Twitter is also Matt C. Waldron. Uh, or at the Beer Tourist. Uh, hashtag any social media with Draw Every Day 2017 to find each other. This is a great idea, too, because sometimes part of, you talk yourself out of the creative process, and so you are gonna you go to do something, and then you go, oh, no, that's dumb. But you don't know that it's dumb. Maybe that thing might be dumb, but it could lead to something that's not dumb. And maybe it's just about greasing the wheels and keeping the machine moving. So, you know, dra- drawing every day is a great idea. Writing every day without judgment, just get it out. doesn't matter if it's good or not. You know, don't judge that. Just... Put it out there in the world, and then you can figure out what to do with it. Or maybe it just makes you sharper or better or more engaged. But I highly recommend this. So uh, thank you, Matt Waldron, for making that happen. And this episode is Mark Hamill returning to the podcast. Um, I do want to point out that we recorded this. I might have been a day or two after the Rogue One premiere. So it was in early December. Um, this was before we sadly lost Carrie Fisher. And I, I know she, I think she comes up a couple of times in the podcast, but uh, I just want, just wanted to point that out. I mean, it's devastating, untimely loss. And, and certainly um, I worshipped this woman. I got to meet her at Comic-Con this past year, uh, or maybe two years ago. And she was every bit as wonderful as I'd hoped she would be, but so incredibly smart, so incredibly funny and honest, and uh, certainly someone that I had always wished the schedules had lined up and we had been able to have her on the podcast, but um, still uh, just weirdly empty by by the loss of, uh, of Carrie Fisher. So as I said, this episode, Mark Hamill, who is uh, just... He's the guy you would want him to be because he's so much a part of our community. And so he recognizes and he understands what it means to be a part of our subculture. And he was going to Comic-Cons before he was in Star Wars when they were just... People would just bring crates of comic books to things. And you could could buy some movie posters. But uh, he's a phenomenal storyteller. He's so generous with his time and just such a warm guy. And you can really tell that he genuinely loves and appreciates the fandom and that I'm so glad he's a part of it. I'm so glad he is Luke Skywalker. He is the Luke Skywalker that we deserve. And, uh, and he is also promoting pop culture quest, which is all about collectors. He is a collector himself. And this is about exploring, uh, relationships with other collectors. It is on uh, comic con HQ, which is at comic con HQ.com. Uh, the finale post January 24th. There are still several more episodes. So you should definitely, definitely check that out and watch Mark, uh, navigate people's uh, collective obsessions uh, together. So thank you, thank you, Mark Hamill, for coming on the podcast, which was also brought to you by Stamps.com. Please stop going to the post office. I beg you. I'm begging you to not do that anymore. Why would you drive there, find parking, or if you have to take public transportation and then carry all your stuff and then go... 
Just use stamps.com. It's better. It looks professional. Uh, you can print it out on your computer, your printer, official U.S. postage, any letter or package, and then your mail carrier picks it up. Uh, you can do everything you do with the post office at a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. Right now, sign up for stamps.com. Uh, use the promo code NERDIST for the special offer. Four-week trial, $110 bonus, including postage in a digital scale. Don't wait. Please go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Nerdist. That is stamps.com. Enter the promo code Nerdist. And now, here's the Nerdist podcast, number 847, with Mr. Mark Hamill. Katie, roll the opening scroll. Now entering Nerdist.com. your phone for the wall oh yeah it looks unbelievable the it's, set alone is like so much fun you it's know so they're giving away millions of dollars and i thought oh my god yeah it was really fun i'll bet i didn't really think you know when they brought it to me i was kind of like well you know i don't know if i, I mean, oh re- come on you could do five shows in a day right? i know we did well we did we did a we did two or three shows a day once we got up and running right but honestly they said you know just come and do a run through and if you and if you don't like it, no problem. And within five minutes, I was like, "Ah, oh, shit! I got to do this. This is so much fun. Sure. So much fun." So. One of the earliest memories I have: staying home sick from school and watching Bob Barker on Truth or Consequences. I was like six, thinking, yeah. "This has got to be the best job in the world." All he does is he makes people happy, he makes people laugh, he gives them prizes. That, so that was my initial thinking: is you know. That's how I'll get into show business. <laughs> You're going to do game shows? Well, it seemed to be something I could handle, you know. And I, I just thought, I just loved it so much. Uh, this show, Truth or Consequence, it started on the radio with Ralph Edwards, the guy who invented This Is Your Life. Yeah. And I loved game shows when I was yeah. young. I loved, and I, and I loved it for the same reason, but, you know, because I was born in 71, and so when I was a little, little kid... I just caught that go- that amazing age of 70s, like, match game and Hollywood right. squares. I mean, it was a really good time for, for game shows in the well, 70s. Well, your show's sort of like, you know, in the school of the, the Incredible Machine. It was, it's, it's, the set is incredible. I mean, it's not just like asking questions right. or, you know, uh, to tell the truth. You know, my name is Chris Hardwick, right. that kind of thing. But uh, you know, you must see the drama of these people because they, you know, they make a fortune and they lose it in front of your. Oh, it's terrible! Well, and also, and also, every you know, every show is one team of two people, and they are all selected specifically because they're, you know, they contribute to their community in some way, and they're really good people, or they've done something. It's like. You know, one guy was a bus driver who stopped his bus to jump out and prevent someone from jumping off a bridge. I mean, it's like all these people you love, you instantly relate to. You relate to them and you feel like, I feel like I need to be a better person now. <laughs> and so when they win, you're very happy. And when they don't win, it does, if you, you feel, there's like a gut punch because you're like, yeah, fuck. Yeah. 
but uh, but it it was it was it was really fun. Well, nowadays, I mean, you have to go to the game show network to see game shows of any kind. There's none on network, are there? No, there's. I mean, not, not in the daytime. There's certainly. not at all, and and it's it, there there. I feel like game shows kind of go through waves. Like period, there'll be a period of game shows, and then a period of not of like they go away for a bit. So I don't know what phase we're at right now. I feel like they. I feel like there's not really. A lot of game shows. Well, that I can remember think of. when Millionaire yeah. hit, they thought this is going to be the new golden age of game shows, and it didn't really take on aside from that one. They oversaturated with Millionaire. They got greedy. It, it went five from a, nights a five week. Five nights a week. And then there was a daytime version with Meredith Vieira. Yeah, and I think yeah. people were just like, okay. We like the show, yeah. guys. But I think there's one still in syndication who wants to be in I think I, I think you're absolutely right. Have you ever done any of the shows? Have you ever been a guest on any of the game shows? No. I haven't. They have guests? Well, I mean, like celebrity oh, guests. Like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just saw a promo for Alec uh, Baldwin hosting Match. Yeah, yeah. What is he thinking? <laughs> <laughs> you've, seen, you've seen his impression of uh, you know, what the game shows did. And that's, where, that's where it all comes from, the Saturday Night Live sketch. So he's going to do it. Well, my Match f- game was Gene Rayburn, though, wasn't yeah. it? Match game was Gene Rayburn, yeah. Who's the, who's the, the guy with glasses? Who did the, Charles Nelson Riley? Charles Nelson Riley. Yeah. And he did him on Inside the Actors Studio. It's one of the, it's one of the best. Charles directed me in a Broadway play. What play? The Nerd. Oh. And we'd be getting notes, you know, with those tortoise glasses. But you know what I'm saying? And you, you're trying to focus on your notes, and yet you're so clued into him being, you know, you're you're pre-programmed to laugh. Because he's so uh, large. He's his character. Alive. He's yeah, the character. Yeah, yeah. He seems like he's the character he played. But all those, all the, all those old seventies game shows, I just feel like were fueled by booze. Richard Dawson oh, yeah. was <laughs> hammered. Yeah, well, Everyone they would take drunk. a break. I think they'd do three shows, and then they, at least on Hollywood Square, so my friend was cue card guy on that. And they'd take either between the second show and the third, or the third and the fourth, they break for dinner and. Lots of wine would flow. <laughs> Lots of wine would flow. Uh, but I, I'm excited that you got Pop Culture Quest uh, up and running because I loved pitching the show with you, and I really and I think that was a period until that was a period, even though it was just a few years ago, of television was going through a lot of changes and trying to figure out, like you know, there was a gap between. Yeah, yeah. What's digital and what's television? Now, were you doing uh, at midnight then? Yeah. Yeah, I've been doing it since 2013. I just watched the ones that had uh, Anthony Atamanik, and he just he slays me. He's amazing, and we just had like we just taped, but right before he got here, and James Domian was just on, and he, he yeah, he's so gifted that guy. Yeah, because not only is his Bernie great, but his Jesse Ventura. I mean, <laughs> this guy's got an arsenal of voices, and he's funny as shit. Like sometimes people are just good impressionists. Yeah, but he's a good impressionist. And if you just watch him be himself as a stand-up, he's mm. funny as shit. Yeah, I've never seen a stand-up. We did go out to dinner with them, and he's very clever. Yeah, we had him. Uh, he was on Morgan Murphy and Reggie Watts, who uh, was, yeah. it That's was such a good... It was a solid panel. I can take her if she's No, no, no. I think they're, do, think they're doing fine. Yeah, the pups are just trying to figure out. We haven't it. started yet, have we? We or... did. Yeah, I think this. we did start. We're just, we're just, we're just, it's just all loosey-goosey. Oh, that's There's, the there's no is. official structure oh, to this. Oh, that's good. That's good. In fact, when they said, do you want to be on uh, Chris Hardwick's podcast, I said, sure, send him out to the house. Because <laughs> I've done podcasts where my buddies will just come over and sit in the living yeah. room and flip on their tape recorder. Yeah. And then I thought, oh, well, wait a second. I, I haven't. They said, well, we can't do that. 
I said, uh, I thought maybe I'd come and there'd be like a full audience or something no. like at midnight. No, no it's idea. very it's very intimate. And I apologize. Look, I want to come. I wanted to come to your house. It's just my oh, schedule. My schedule sucks. We, uh, you just said you just taped something. <laughs> we just right? taped something. Yeah. So we did. I did have you here in the uh, in the room with the uh, the the fancy felted uh, Star Wars wallpaper. I can't believe this. This is amazing. If you could only see what we're speaking from, you I mean, you're in the right place to talk about a show that's about. <laughs> collecting when you see and, that, and my dressing room's through there and there's yeah. 10 times more shit in there than there is in here okay you see okay. they see the the original jabba uh, uh, still in the box uh the action the jabba the hut action play set oh, up wow. there yeah that's the real d- dilemma for collectors do i remove it from the box i've got the Ravel beatles kits you know the the plastic model kits and i thought i'm not going to take them out and build them i mean if you're really hardcore you get two Build a set and then have for display. I'd, I'd have a broader philosophy. By the way, I just bought, I just I did a, a an, an animation auction on Friday and I bought a yellow submarine cell. Oh, I'm yeah. very, very excited about. Yeah, it. I have a few of those. Um, Which what what's in the cell? Nowhere, man. Okay. I tried to bid on. There was one. There was one that was uh, three three of the Beatles. Even though they didn't voice them, but it was three of the Beatles right. signed by George Martin and Al Brodax, who yeah. directed yeah, it. Yeah. And but it ended up going for just under ten grand. Those are prices. Like, uh... The Beatles are in it. They were sort of not enamored of the Saturday morning cartoon series. Right. They didn't care for it, and it was the same people doing it. Now I liked the show because it had Beatles music on it. I knew the the animation wasn't good. The stories were pretty crappy. But hey, Beatles music coming over your TV set, good enough. So I always watched it. And then when they said they were doing Yellow Submarine, I thought, oh, it's the same gang. They're going to ruin it. Yeah. I had no idea that they would do it as in, in such an innovative way. Eric Siegel wrote the screenplay, the guy who wrote Love Story. Yep. And when the Beatles saw it in production, that's when they decided, oh, let's go in and film a little piece right. that's included at the but end. But I just think it's funny that they didn't voice themselves. Well, it wasn't – they didn't voice themselves in the original The Beatles cartoon series either. Their schedules were crazy. Um, you know, when you read about how they were – Merchandise by Brian Epstein, some of the stories just make your hair stand on end. That story where he met with these merchandisers and they said, uh, well, we thought a, a 90-10 split would be fair. And, <laughs> and Brian said, well, yeah, 10% would be good for us. And they couldn't believe it because they meant it the other way around. Right. He was such a neophyte. I mean, obviously, he's crucial to you know their their history and their, their evolution, but uh, – in many ways, he was a babe in the woods. Uh, but the you know one of, that's ironically that's the first real collection that I bought. I was I'm exactly twenty years older than you, so I was born in fifty one. You said you were born in seventy one. Seventy one, yeah. So um, I'm in college in nineteen seventy when the Beatles break up. And first of all, we're all in denial. This can't be happening, and so forth. And it just so happened that this girl needed money for college. You know, she had to buy her textbooks or whatever. And she was selling like, I don't know, 15, 20 pieces of Beatles memorabilia of her own. And it's ironic because we just found the the actual list of what I paid for. And it was about $117 <laughs> oh, for man. the whole collection. Oh. And it, was, it was all the four bobbleheads, oh, both lunchboxes and so forth. Any one item now is worth more than that. But the only reason I bought it was it, 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 the realization had sunk in 
they're never coming back. They're just gone. Right. And all those things that I had mocked before, because I was all about the music. I said, who, who would buy a Beatles flip your wig board game? <laughs> you know, you'd have to be really mental to want a, something like that. And then, of course, they took on a whole new kind of uh, aura, w- w- knowing that they were gone. So uh, suddenly I became very interested in acquiring all the, the things that, that – that, reminded me of them. So that was my first out now collection that I bought. Many years later, uh, I'm talking about acquiring big collections all at once. Because one of the reasons there's Quest in the title is it's it's kind of nostalgic for the old days. Because nowadays you just go online and you Google whatever item you want. It's almost unrewarding because there's no effort at all. Right. I mean, we had to go to flea markets. We had to go to garage sales. We had to go to swap meets. You know, you there was real detective work involved. I used to go on location for odd TV movies or television shows, whatever. And you go to some place like in the Deep South, and and that was a real advantage because you go to like mom and pop five and dime stores, you know, off the beaten track, and you know you're not going to really find bargains in the big cities so much. But uh, and then you go to location, you'd see a yard sale on the way to work. And ask the driver, can we stop on the way back? And that was part of the fun, it, it, the quest aspect of it. Um, with uh, the Aurora model kits I bought, I mean, I remember the first day I walked into a five and dime store. And it was like rack focusing. The Frankenstein <laughs> monster model kit across the, you know, just... Because my older brother, he built battleships and World War II planes. And it just wasn't my thing. I liked the concept of building something... You know, and, and, you know, uh, painting it and, you know, the glue, the, 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 just the whole process. And then, uh, but there was nothing I was interested in building, really. Tanks, who wants to build a German tank? You know, he's kind of into World War II and all this stuff. Hitler did. Yeah, there you go. Hey, come on, you guys. But, uh, hey, what, you we're just go, having, you we're never, just making jokes. You, you can never go wrong with a Hitler we're just reference. jokes. Come on. Yeah, it's not, I didn't say it was okay. So I, you know what? Fuck him. I'm not afraid to say it. Fuck that guy. All right, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to take us off on a dumb joke tangent. I apologize. Yeah, Mel Brooks. If he oh, can mock Mel. him and make him and the source of ridicule, what shocked me was how big a hit the producers was in Germany because they're so touchy about that subject. I thought the best joke on Saturday Night Live last week was. Uh, uh, it was uh, it was Kate McKinnon playing Ander, uh, Angela Merkel saying, uh, "In America you call it alt right. In uh, my country you call it where Grandpapa had to. Uh, why Grandpapa has to live in Argentina?" <laughs> I thought, no, that's a good joke. <laughs> but I, so, so sorry to interrupt the Jew. For, you, were, you were talking about getting the tank, and you were talking about no, which no, thing you wanted I, to I, build. The, the, I, well, listen, this changed my life because I was a I was a famous monsters of Filmland kid. You know, because I mean they released all those. Universal horror pictures in the late 50s for television. The Mummy and Frankenstein, Dracula, all of them. And I was mad for this stuff. So I read Famous Monsters magazine. And, of course, to see this Frankenstein model kit, I mean, I just – I heard celestial music. Now, it was only 99 cents, which, you know, you have to – in those days, it was probably the equivalent of 5 or $6 to acquire. See, and I didn't have it. You know, you go to the mall with 15 cents in your pocket. You didn't get a comic book and five pieces of bubblegum. You're good to go. But um, – uh, so I started building these kits, and I did Frankenstein, I did Dracula, I did Wolfman, I did Mummy. I think I did, yeah, I did Hunchback and Godzilla. By that time, you know, 
my recreational money was split. The Beatles had hit big, and I thought, well, this is, I, mean, I got to get into the teenage world, and I sort of left it behind. Flash forward to the acquiring an Aurora collection from this, this dentist in Maryland was selling his collection of like, I don't know how many. I'd have to. How are you finding these people, by the way, in this now, in, the, in that day? And age? I think this guy I found through Kevin Burns, who's a guy who directs documentaries, and uh, he's a uh, he bought the Irwin Allen estate, and he owns the rights to lots and space and everything. I know him through Bill Moomey, but uh, he told me this guy is selling his collection. You know, the, the whole thing. I mean, it was it was seventeen thousand dollars, but it, and it came in. Three big cases, and at the time it was like gulp because you know that's that's a lot of money. Uh, you know, especially if you got kids that are going to private schools and they need braces, or whatever. Uh, and I kept downscaling. You know, I went from collecting golden age comic books, and I thought they're way too expensive. You know, I mean, when you're at the point where your accountant is saying, "Did you get that Detective Forty into the safety deposit box?" It's right. There's no more fun. Right. I mean, you can't pass them around and show them. Say, "Hey, Chris, look at this ad. Look, you know, Charles. You know, don't be a." Uh, 90 eight pound weakling or the world war two ads all that stuff uh so it you know it becomes like collecting fine art or you know uh you know it's when everything is tied to the condition you're in trouble because uh then you can't handle it you can't you know uh eat tacos <laughs> right <laughs> read them at the same time uh, so, but like I say, that you know, the the story I told about the the uh, model kits was uh, I bought it and it was it was great. But at the same time, it's not as satisfying as tracking down each individual kit, especially when they're really difficult to find. And back when I was collecting comic books, I'd really pick I'd pick some obscure book. I'd say Adventure Two Ten, first appearance of Crypto. No one's ever seen it. It was low run. It did, you know it was in the fifties, whatever. And you wouldn't see it for years and years and years. This is back when I was going to Comic-Cons uh, on a routine basis. But eventually, you know, when you find it, it's, it's, it's quite a thrill. But, you know, like everything else, I don't want to be the guy that goes, you know, in my day, you know, all that. No one, <laughs> Listen, no one. I'm already that guy, and I'm 20 years younger than you, so you might as well just be that guy. Because there's already such a and, – and it actually leads back into this broader philosophical question about collecting, which is, uh, w- you know, when the things that you're talking about uh, – I back up a little bit. I just went to I had a, I went to a Disneyland auction a few weeks ago, right. and I was bidding on a, a haunted an original haunted mansion stretch painting. Oh, like, one of the hand painted ones. They stopped from from the attraction mm-hmm. itself. Yeah, Ooh. they stopped painting them, or I think in 1974, and they screen printed them. But I think before 1974 was when they were. So this was painted, uh, and I was prepared to pay a lot of money for this thing. It ended up going for. With fees, with with the auction fees, $172,500. $172,500. Now, my friend Rob Zombie has one of the stretch paintings, and I told him, and he was like, fuck, I got that. I got mine in the 90s for like three grand. It's the girl with the parasol over the alligator? No, the the one that I was bidding on was the guy on the dynamite barrel. The one that Rob has is the, yes, is the, no. He might, yes, I think he does have the parasol on the high wire. So and and you can see the roller marks on the side from where it stretches yeah, on his. Yeah, but he's like, yeah. I paid three grand for mine. So now, of course, the internet has changed everything because you used to just be collecting against a b- bunch of other very specific niche nerds, and now right. you're bidding against the whole fucking world. So what is it now that people can collect? Because in those days, the things that you're talking about collecting, they weren't made with the idea of these are going to be collected. They were meant to be consumed. And now I feel like so many things are about 
are, are done almost too aware of the fact that this is a collector thing. Yeah, yeah. comic so, book, the multiple covers. What do you collect thing. now? Like, what is there now to collect? And and you know, because I feel like a lot of stuff we're collecting is old stuff. Right. So does it make sense to <laughs> collect anything contemporary? Well, it depends on where you're coming at it from. Like, I would never sell things that I bought. Some people do collect as investments. They're going to pay it and want to turn it over and get a profit, see, or, or, or buy two, you know, one for their collection and one to save and, and let it go up in value. Uh, because we have, we've raised a whole generation of kids that have that collector's mentality. I mean, part of the genius of, uh, of the, 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 the fun, anyway, of collecting uh, comic books was that they were never considered anything that would go up in value. They were printed on the cheapest paper. They were meant to be read, passed around, rolled up, and used as fly swatters or right. to make that card table uh, stop rocking. Which is back why and the forth. one when they weren't used for that and were actually preserved, that made it extra special. Oh right. wow, someone really the took odds care of, of this. yes, exactly the odds of something that's that fragile lasting in such good condition for years and years and years. It's like the Mile High co- collection; they happened to be in a perfect setting. The the weather was crisp and cold enough it didn't get humid it was it stored in a dark place so by be, against all odds this guy's collection looks almost exactly like it did when he bought it in the 40s so uh uh you know it's it's one of those things uh, i remember getting the boys i'd always like to put you know fill the christmas stocking and then have a comic book sticking out the top and one year it was the beavis and butthead scratch and sniff comic <laughs> and it was in a, it was in a plastic bag <laughs> did it smell like farts the flash forward years later, and we're going through their closet. I mean, God knows. It must have been, you know, like uh, those, uh, the Jelly Baby right. uh, vomit flavor. But, yeah. Uh, uh, years later, I'm cleaning out their closet, and I find the, 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 the comics still in the bag. I said, you guys, how come you didn't? So I thought you were big Beavis and Butthead fans. Oh, Dad, it's collectible. So they didn't open it, they didn't read it, and they didn't... Probably the smells go away after so many years. I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. So what can you do? But uh, uh, I don't know. I always tell people, collect what you like, you know? Uh, Like I say, there's different different approaches. You can, you know... Some people look at it it like a business. Uh, uh, That's no fun. I mean, you know, if you want to collect that way, that's fine. Yeah. But the cells that... Because I'm... I have a weakness for it's a very specific they have to be original production cells. Right. I don't necessarily mind if they were trimmed down or not on the original backgrounds. I just like but uh, but to a degree I feel like oh I I want to kind of save these and I want to make sure they're okay and I've mm. I've been on a fucking tear with you know I bought a Pinocchio and Alice in Wonderland and a bunch of Ren and Stimpies and I even bought um I even bought some Count Chocula and Frankenberries oh, from, nice. from from the old from the old commercials 60s, and yeah. Uh, yeah and uh, well Alan Maley was a special effects guy at Disney who I knew in the early seventies a friend of my brother's and he said you know when we wrap production on Fantasia in <laughs> in the forties we went. And was a complete. And we got the okay that it was a lock. It was completely finished. 
We went cell surfing. I said, what's cell surfing? He said, it's where you spread all the cells oh, down the hallway. fuck. Oh, no. At Disney. And you, <laughs> no. you, you run and you jump on the cells and they slide all the way across the floor. Prior to being disposed of, because they would just put them out in the dumpster. Yeah. Now, you know, I remember early going to the Disneyland in the 60s and on Main Street they would sell cells. Uh, uh, when I was like 10, 11, 12, I'm looking through these and seeing like, oh, look, this is from One Room and Dalmatians. That's the first time I'd ever seen a cell, and certainly a cell for sale. But uh, they came late to that. I mean, so many of these collections are, uh, it's by the grace of God, they survived it all. Bob well, Burns, this guy that we interviewed for for our show. Massive uh, collector. Oh, my God. And, and he said the very first collecting... Collector's item he ever had was the the wolf head from the cane, uh, the Lon Chaney Jr., the wolf man. And he said – because, you know, he was a kid in the 40s, and he lived in the valley. So he lived around movie people, and, you know, this guy knew this guy knew this guy, and he eventually got to meet the prop guy at Universal, and that's how that came about. But for the most part, people were just like either putting them in storage or just throwing it out or repurposing it, you know, painting over it or, or redesigning it to, to use in another film. At what point <laughs> at what point do we become hoarders? I started to feel a little bit... My wife collects horror props, and I collect cells. Horror and props? Horror props. Okay. So, um, and... You know, at, at what point do you think do collectors just become hoarders? Like a collector is a very romantic idea yeah, of, yeah. you know, I feel a hoarder just collects everything, and a collector collects every of a very specific thing. Yeah. And does that make it okay? And at what point do we kind of have to go? Because didn't you say, you know, I feel like we were pitching this show, and it was right. You couldn't say that you were working on episode seven, but you said, no. well, I gotta start training. For a space movie that I'm not allowed to say what it is. <laughs> hint, hint, wink, wink. <laughs> and that, so it was that just the beginning of that, but it hadn't officially been announced right. yet. Um, uh, so uh, at that time, I think you said, oh, I had to – did you have a separate house or like a separate, a separate storage facility right. for all of your stuff? That was the signal that, Mark, you've got a problem. <laughs> because if you're renting storage space – and this is Port Wainimi. I live in Malibu, so it's like 90 minutes. Right. If you have to drive 90 minutes to visit things in a garage, I mean, it's really sad because the attic was filled. The basement was filled. I mean, we have one of the only basements that I know of in Malibu. And then uh, it, it, it kind of I, – I, I, I said we really missed a, a chance when the guy next door moved out. We should have just bought that house. But we didn't think about it. So this in a way is a really selfish way for me to – sort of fill that void of collecting without really acquiring new items. Right. Because I'm really interested in other people's stuff. I mean, the fact that you have what you just what you've described to, tonight. I mean, uh, those stretch paintings. I, what, did they eventually replace them? Now, would they replace them with the same, was it was the same pictures, but, but they got too old or something? They replaced them with screen. They used to do, in the, in the old days, um, and the Haunted Mansion dates to the late 60s, and, and, but in the old days, they... Uh, they were painted by hand, right. like actual paintings. And then in the mid-70s, I think they became screen prints. 
so they could just manufacture them cheaply and what they them would do them on computer or something or not computer but just like like a, like a screen print like a like a I don't know if it's like a silk screen or just but basically like a screen print so that it wasn't it wasn't someone hand painting it it was just like like screened on like a t-shirt I guess okay. and, and onto the canvas and because then they could just mass produce those and replace them all. I don't know that the actual subject matter changed. You're saying, in other words, they images took- are still the same, just the process okay, is different. The process and is the, different. and the earlier ones are because they're like basically works of art because a person painted them. Sure. Uh, and so, but I don't think anyone. What expected- kind of stuff did your wife collect? Because Mary Lou collects. Well, she did collect Tinkerbell. And I said, now see, that's smart. If you pick like one character. You know, if you pick Captain Hook or you pick some character, especially if they're obscure, they, yeah. you know, they, they're not going to mass produce a lot. Of, they're going to do a lot of more Peter Pan items than they're going to do Captain Hook. So she picked Tinkerbell. Uh, but this, of course, was before they really pumped up the whole Disney princesses line and did direct home video. Sure. Then she's had several movies now. I mean, this is 20 years ago that she was collecting. She's oversaturated Tinkerbell, saturated like millionaire. That's there the problem. There you go. Yeah. And, and not only that, but you know, she, they, they, she, they, she got targeted where she started getting phone calls and mailers saying there might be a new, there. We have a new Tinkerbell item. You might be interested. Oh yeah. In. I listen that there are, there are, they, they've there are, got your number, right? They do. Yeah. There, there are guys, there are people around the country who I buy sells from around the world, actually, that, you know, I'll get they'll get the hey, I just got these, you know, and they look really good. And, and but I must, but to me, it's all a diary of everything that I loved. Like I have eight cells from the dot in the line, which is this classic Chuck Jones. Sure, I know uh, that cartoon. Won an Oscar, right? Uh, and Ren and Stimpy was very influential to me, and Flintstones, and some of the filmation, like Batman, like some of the you know those filmation um, uh, pieces. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dragon's Lair was Don Bluth. It was a very famous video game that was a laser oh, disc. Yeah. So I have, uh, you know, I have some of that. So everything is very special to me. And Lydia collects. Um, she just loves horror props. She bought. She bought, bought two Gremlins. Um, she bought the. Uh, she bought one of the blasters from Galaxy Quest. She bought a cast of Jack Nicholson's head from Wolf. I try to tell her it's not a great movie, but she doesn't listen to me. Uh, <laughs> doesn't matter. She, she bought uh, one of the were- werewolf heads from The Howling, and uh, and then she bought. It's not an original Reagan, but from not Ronald Reagan, but from Exorcist. Uh, Exorcist. But yeah. the but the people who make the um, a lot of the props for Universal and stuff, they had okay. an ex- they had a couple of Reagan. Exorcist doll dummies, and I think Guillermo bought one of them. I worked Lydia with Linda Blair on the first thing she did after The Exorcist. What was it? It was called Sarah T, Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic. Oh, my God. And it was directed by Dick Donner, the last TV movie he did before he went off to do Superman. Well, I was in awe of The Exorcist. It scared the hell out of me. I knew nothing about it. We saw Still it holds up. Well, we saw it this... Well, but you saw it in the theater. These kids today, they pause it, go to the rest, <laughs> you know, make some microwave popcorn. When when you when there's no escape, when you're in a theater like Alien or something, and the sound is 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 and the it's 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 the perfect uh, way to see these pictures. Uh, we went second night. I and I remember driving and I said, "What is this again? Is this The Exorcist? What is it? Oh, it's some kind of supernatural thing. That's all we knew." And I wasn't ready for it. it just knocked me in the gut. So working on Sarah T, I was like really taken aback because you know she was just a kid. She might have been sixteen then. Yeah. I don't know. It was nineteen seventy four or five, seventy five, I think. But in any case. Um, 
it took me a while to get over being comfortable around her, and I was peppering her with questions. I mean, oh, my God, I mean, how did you get the <laughs> breath to come out of your mouth and all that? And I said, wasn't it scary? And she goes, well, it wasn't scary to me because I was in the makeup. I couldn't see what I looked like. And Dick tried to make it like a game, you know, when the bed was rising up, you know, we'd make jokes about rides at Disneyland and so forth. And obviously, you know, uh, once you become a little more – have a little more experience, you realize, you know, the, you know, a, a movie set is not doesn't always reflect uh, the subject matter at hand. You know, a horror movie isn't scary to work on any more than a comedy is hilarious to work on. But uh, uh, she, uh, it, it was a, it, it was an incredible experience for me to see how, with editing and and the script and just the way. The, you know the, the the pictures put together. Uh, uh, she, I don't know what I expected. I don't know if I expected her to be deep and brooding or what. what. <laughs> she was a kid. Yeah, she was just a kid. In fact, Dick Donner pulled me aside one day and he said, "I'm going to have to ask you because you know I could get her to laugh. You know, I, I, I could tickle her funny bone, and she would get she get these uh, get the giggles, and she'd be no good after a while. So he's a layoff, you know. <laughs> but." Uh, <laughs> That's really funny though because I to me it's ve- and I mean this in the best way possible. It is su- it is such a sweet justice that this guy you who is such a great real honest to god nerd, a proto nerd got to be in fucking Star Wars. Like it like the idea that you are this guy that you were going to conventions and you were collecting oh, and you were that you, you get to be in this how thing. About, how about this experience? You test for the movie with only eight pages, and you can't figure out whether it's a parody, is it serious, whatever it is. And I've tested with Harrison and George was directing. And I'm peppering them with questions. Is this like a satire of, you know, well, well, let's just do it and we'll talk about it later, <laughs> which means do it and we'll never talk about it later. <laughs> and I was trying to ask Harrison about it because he'd worked with him on graffiti. I said, it's like, it is, it's like funny, right? I mean, it seems to me funny. I mean, some of these lines are just crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, people say, Hamill, you've been telling the same story for decades, but it's true. The line that got me, Chris, was we're in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon and he's, and, and there was true humor in it. You know, it's like, Hey, you know, I did my part of the bargain. Now uh, I'm going to drop you off and let you go. And I go, oh, and he says, if you'll just pay me the money. And I'm like, um, well, here's the thing. I'm not really sure I have all the money right now. And I remember the line that never made it into the movie was Solo looking at me going, you know, I think I'm beginning to not like you. <laughs> Which so to me, I love that kind of, it's just, it's not overtly a joke, but it's just very funny. The line that got me, and it's not in the movie, and, and people, please forgive me for saying this over and over and over, because I can't forget it after all these years, even though the screenplay was in, or the screen test was in 1975, 76. Uh, trying to convince him not to drop me off and give up the whole thing, I say, but we can't turn back. Fear is their greatest defense. I doubt if the actual security there is any greater than it was on Aquilae or Sullust. And what there is is most likely directed towards a large-scale assault. Now, I'm reading this in my little one-bedroom apartment in, in Malibu going, who talks like this? I mean, you can probably break it down. I did. I, it's like diagramming a sentence. But we can't turn back. Okay, I get that. Fear is their greatest defense. Yes, the intimidation of that huge space station is the best. Uh, uh, um, 
I doubt if the actual security there on the Death Star is any greater than it was on Aquilae or Sullus. Just made up BS planet names. So, And what there is is most likely directed at a large-scale assault. Yeah, they're ready for an armada. They're not ready for some little pirate ship to slip through. So it really makes sense, but then to try and make it sound conversational, right, right. it's just cuckoo bananas. Like this is, yeah, if you, if you were that guy and that's how you really would... I feel like if Luke Skywalker showed up to a party, people would be like, ah, fuck, come on. Can you just take that down a notch? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's too bad of all the, of all the special editions. Oh, he's going to start rattling off the shit again. God. No, with all the special He brings special, the blue milk. We got to invite With all the special editions, it's too bad that the the Tashi stations cut out because it's it's important for Luke's character because what happens – I'm the only one who has, doesn't have an organic entrance into the film. The first time you see Han Solo, that's when you see Han Solo. The first time you see the princess, etc. The only character that you don't see in the way it was filmed was Luke because what happens when the – when the the robots jettison from the from from the the ship at the beginning, they cut to a long shot of Tatooine of Luke working on his on his evaporator. That's where you have the Gilligan hat with the goggles. People go and the poncho. <laughs> well, where did that come from? And he sees a little twinkle in the sky, and he gets out his macro binoculars, and he sees this thing, and he gets really excited, and he jumps in the land speeder, and he zips off to – basically, it's the teen club. And what, <laughs> what it is is it shows that – several things. It shows that Luke is not a cool kid at all. Right. He, kid, they all, oh, Wormy's been out in the sun too long. Uh, the only other woman in the movie was Koo Stark. Of course, she's cut out besides Carrie. And uh, she's mocking me. She's sitting on this other guy's lap. You can tell I have a big crush on her. But I mean, I'm just like I'm like a, a geeky little kid, right? And and they, they you know, uh, the, it's in, inferred that I've got my head in the clouds and I'm a dreamer and all this stuff. And another thing that I think is really interesting is Garrick Hagen plays Biggs Darklighter. He's the only one of the let's see, one, two, three, four actors that wasn't completely cut out. He's in the assault on the Death Star at the end. But he's in this imperial outfit, and I'm like, "Wow, cool!" You know, so you, clearly I have no political persuasions whatsoever. <laughs> it's like you're a Nazi, great, wow, you know, um, exactly. And he says, "Well, come here, I, I want to let you know something." We go outside, and he goes, "I got to let you know the first t- chance I get, I'm going to jump ship and jump join the Rebel Alliance." And again, it doesn't really land on Luke. It's he's all he wants to do is get out of the house. Right. It doesn't matter to him whether it's the uh, uh, rebels. Or whether it's the empire, so you think he could have been turned a completely different way? Absolutely. If the wrong well, got I mean, that, exactly. And and the thing is, uh, to me, that's character. I mean, it, it's interesting. It's in the novel by Alan Dean Foster, and it's not for me saying, "Hey, I want more screen time." It's just, it seems to me that when they went back, there's a reason they cut Job of the Hut out in the original film. Now, it wasn't the CGI worm; it was an actor, right? Uh, Declan, I'm getting his name wrong. The, the people will know it. But in any case, he was a big Irish actor. Han, Han, me boy. Great to see you. He looked like a big Viking guy. And you've seen the scene now because they've taken him and they've placed the the CGI uh, Jabba over him. Mm-hmm. And the reason it was cut out is because it's redundant. All the information you get in that scene, you've just heard in the scene before when me and Guinness go in and hire Harrison. You know, we, we you know, he when when Greedo comes in, he says, "I'm going, I'm going to pay him back." I mean, all that, all it's just, it's, it's just the same information all over again. Right. And, and George realized that it came out; nobody missed it. 
But boy, does he love CGI, and he had a chance. <laughs> In fact, he, you know what he was most proud of? He was able to, make, to, to manipulate Harrison to make it look like he stepped over the tail. You know? <laughs> and he, he, he was rubbing his hands together. He was so delighted with that. So, I mean, you know, it's George's toy to play with. Because people say, don't you think it's too bad that they don't offer the original the way it was meant to be, you know, without all the changes and the special editions? And I'm torn because it does – it's playing around with movie history. On the other hand, it's his to play with you know but fans and this is a very interesting uh, another interesting philosophical question is how much ownership do fans have over the thing and that is something that i feel like we're that is very much a part of the entertainment business now because of social media and how interconnected right. everything is, is and everyone can express their ideas is right. how much ownership because i you know i've hung out with george twice and i feel like he is very different on camera than off camera he, he uh, off camera, he seemed a little more personable, but then when the cameras came on, he kind of didn't want to make an opinion on anything. Yeah, and I think it's probably yeah, just because yeah. every time he says something, people, half of the people are like, you're a genius. And the other half of the people are like, screw you. Right. And I just feel like, well, he can't, it's not really, is it his anymore? Yeah, you know, yeah. Does, do, do you think, do you think it's still his? No. I, I mean, mean, I know, in it's, many ways I know he it's doesn't not. own it anymore. But, but, you know, it reminds me, I mean, talking about collectors, you know, uh, these guys that collected uh, model railroad kits. I mean, usually they were parents because they're really expensive. You go in the basement, holy moly, look at this setup. Yeah. And those things, it's like Walt Disney said, Disneyland will never be finished. <laughs> you know, and, and a lot of these model train guys, they're always putting in a new uh, set of trees or a new uh, depot right. station. It's always evolving. And, and, and I think George, to a certain extent, felt that way. And as the technology improved, I mean, I, I didn't expect them to wait, what it was, it like 15, 16 years after Jedi to do the prequels. But it, he was, I mean, he says now the only reason he waited so long is that technology wasn't there. And then he saw Jurassic Park and goes, ah, now I can do this. But, uh, you know, it's just interesting to see how the evolving uh, uh, life of this of this guy. Well, he said he said that uh, I was part of a like an, I was part of an Omaze contest where someone bid a lot and money went to charity and the winner Nerdist put it on and the winner got to have breakfast with George. And right. so I went up to the ranch and it was me and George, I mean, like literally four people, five people in this room in the main building in the ranch right. by his office. And um and he was very open, and, and they were kind of assaulting him with questions, of course, assaulting him with questions. But it was interesting when he got to, you know, the guy kind of teased him a little bit about Jar Jar. And, and he was like, well, you know, I mean, everyone wants to make fun of Jar Jar, but if it weren't for Jar Jar, there wouldn't be Avatar. You know, so, like, he did take a lot of pride in the idea that they did make this. Yeah. But, you know, I've heard these, I've heard rumors that maybe this is more common knowledge. Well, Jar Jar was supposed to be the Sith Lord, and there was maybe, you know, and then also... That David Fincher came in and did a version of Phantom Menace, you know, when they were doing the editing process. And is that right? I know. See, I don't know these things. I, I don't know if that's I true do or not. Know that, I do know that it got down to Richard Marquand and David Lynch to direct Jedi. Now, I didn't know who Richard Marquand was, so I'm going, oh, please let it be David Lynch. Please let it be David Lynch. Because I think the dark and the light go well together. It's like Lennon McCartney. They, sure. They complement each other. So right. if you have a guy that has a sort of dark, cynical uh, view – uh, coming into Star Wars, which is which are very optimistic, uh, bright, sunny kind of pictures, uh, it's it's a nice fit. So, uh, and he didn't get the gig, but uh, he went on and did Dune. George, I don't know. It's tricky because I know it hurts his feelings. I'm mean, obviously you want what you like to be liked. 
his son Jet named Jar Jar. And, you know, I sort of I sort of defend Jar Jar because I say, well, yeah, he's annoying, but he's supposed to be annoying. I mean, he's supposed to be annoying <laughs> to other characters in the film. Doesn't uh, uh, the Liam Neeson character grab his tongue at one point? I mean, right. Uh, I think it got a little tricky because I think he was meant to be the comic relief. And if the comedy doesn't work, it just kind of lays an egg. And, and <laughs> um, you know, uh, but, you know, I think he got more and more isolated, you know, in the beginning. Marsha was there. That's his wife. She edited, in fact, won an Oscar for the editing on Star Wars. And I said this before, but she she would, you know, she has his ear. I mean, there's pillow talk. So when he cut the kiss from the Star Wars, you know, for luck, he cut that after a preview because it got a laugh. And she said, George, that's a good laugh. He says, no, 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 because, you know, right in the tension and all that. And everybody just laughed. She goes, yes, because it was so unexpected. It's so anachronistically corny. I mean, who does that? A kiss for luck. Remember? Yeah. It's so it, – to me, that's the essence of how retro uh, that movie was in many ways. Because I'm reading this thing. I'm going, my gosh, it Red River's in here and, and the pirate movies are in here and, world, you know, the Dam Busters. It's like an amalgamation of all these great – you know, Saturday afternoon movies that I loved uh, as a kid. And going back to my decision at the, at my screen test, I kept trying to get to uh, – what I was trying to get out of them is are we sending up Mel Brooks style? Maybe not that broadly, but is this like a sly satire? Because, you know, I'm a Saturday Night Live guy too, so I'm thinking – the only thing I did smart, I think, was – since I couldn't get it out of either one of those two, out of George or Harrison, I just have to take uh, – uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do it as sincerely as I can. I'm not going to comment or be ironic or wink at the camera. I'm going to do it as sincerely as I can. Now, it turns out that's the crucial decision. If I try to send it up or 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 be arch about it, who knows? I mean um, it's funny you mentioned episode seven because – I was in the house one time and the whole family went out shopping. I found myself alone. I was on the internet and I came across the auditions. Now, I know they're extras on the, some of the DVDs, but I've never seen the movies on videotape. I've never seen them. I've only seen them in the movies. Oh, wow. So the last time I saw them was when the special editions come out. Even then, I said, send me a DVD. And the kids all said, no, we want to see it in the movies. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, I guess I can see that. Because I wouldn't have seen him in the movies if it weren't for the kids. So off we went. But I thought, dare I look at this? Because I don't really like watching myself. I thought, well, nobody's around. And if it's really <laughs> – if it's ultra ghastly, I'll just never talk about it again. I shall never speak of this again. Let's never speak. So I clicked on it. And what got me was that it was William Catt and Kurt Russell and Robbie Benson and me. And everybody was good. I mean I thought – Every single Luke was a legitimate Luke who could have been perfect in the part. And I thought, wow, that almost must have been a coin flip in terms of who do you go with? Because, I mean, you know, uh, Kurt was sort of like he, – he's borderline. He could have been Han Solo as well. But he was great and sincere. Robbie was really sort of the most babyish of them, uh, the most youthful and, and, and cute, I would say. And, uh, but William Catt, all of them. I mean, I, like I say, instead of saying, oh, I, now that's why I got it, I, I thought – I don't I, – this is a mystery to me because, you know, we weren't cast individually. We were cast as a set. There was one set of Han, Leia, and Luke and another set of Han, Leia, and Luke. Marsha told me that and they never mixed and matched. 
And she said George was packing to go to London. And he still hadn't made a decision. She took credit for pushing him towards his choice. But uh, uh, who were I, the other? Who were the other groups? Well, let's see. Uh, I know Terry Nunn from Berlin. Oh my God! Was Princess Leia? I didn't know that. There was an actor named Will Seltzer. If you remember Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Yeah. I... In the first uh, run of episodes, he played this curly-haired serial killer. And he got out of the business. I hear he works in a bakery or lives in the New England. I can't remember who Han Solo was. There's rumors it was Stallone, but I don't think so because Stallone was too ethnic. I mean, in his delivery. I mean, you know, you could place him as a, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not positive. Uh, you know, people know this stuff more than me. If Nathan were here, my, my oldest son, Nathan, was born when we were doing Empire Strikes Back and Gosh, he knows the minutia. He reads Star Wars Insider, and he, you know, I'll go to him and say, ask him questions. He knows. But I think, I think, <clears throat> I think that character just needed a shade of true geekiness, like a shade of sh- that. And I think that's well. I think the point was to to, to assure people that you know you, you make of 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 the situation what you will. I mean, in other words, I wasn't six foot two, you know, and uh, you know a. a perfectly fit specimen. You're right. I was kind of a geek with no discernible skills. Uh, but I thought that was reassuring. I thought of all the characters that you read. It's the most empathetic. You're the most empathetic for him. He, there's always a gateway character that you want You want to grab the audience with, kids especially. Now, the kids might be a little wary of Han Solo. He's swaggery and he's a, a, a rogue and a, and a pirate and all that. And, you know, the princess is royalty and, you know, Darth Vader's scary. I, of all the characters, Luke is the most accessible in terms of a nine-year-old going, oh, yeah, I could hang out with him and I, and I wouldn't be intimidated. Yeah. He's just like a farm guy. You know, Kurt I, Russell's another Han Solo. Like, that yeah, would have been weird. Yeah, well, but see, again, I mean, I don't know how much... I, we might be more... Because Harrison was like 35, I was 24. So, I, I mean, I don't know if it was an age thing. But the one I saw, he was, he was playing Luke. And, and like I say, I thought uh, the one thing that I loved was... Uh, uh, the fact that they were all legitimate choices in their own way. And the only thing I thought was – I was surprised because one of my problems in early on especially was if I wanted something, it would show. I have this sort of not desperation but a neediness, an over-eagerness <laughs> that doesn't play well. And whether or not – because I say to young actors, I said, if you can act like you don't care, that's a real plus. I mean, if you can be aloof and act like you know, you know, oh, give me this part, uh, that that'll uh, serve you very, very well. I don't know how you act. It's tough to it's uh, tough I to know. pretend like you don't. I know, I know. I mean, it's easier said than done, but it can be done. I mean, if you're a good actor, you can act like you know how what what's necessary. But what I thought when I saw the the screen test, I said. For once, I wasn't overdoing it. Maybe because the material was so unusual, I was trying to underplay it as best I could and make it as matter-of-fact as I could. Uh, But again, I was operating completely in the dark. This long preamble was to get to this point with you, which is... So I go away, and I don't hear anything. And then three or four weeks later, my agent calls and said, well, you got it. I got, got what? You got Star Wars. I said, oh, Really? Great, and she, uh, you know, because I mean, for me, it was mostly to work with a guy who did American Graffiti, to go to England for the first time, which I dreamed about since the Beatles, and to work with Sir Alec Guinness. All those three things were the top of the pops for me. 
But the experience of having that script delivered and sitting in my one-bedroom apartment in Malibu and, you know, you turn the page and you read this thing, holy, I mean, because I had no idea. Someone said to me, oh, it's, it's like Flash Gordon or something. But I was just swept away because it reads like a dream. I mean, even without John Williams' music, without all those incredible special effects and the great art direction and so forth, it's on the page. It really takes you away. The humor's there. The robots are. This is all your fault. I mean, I, again, I didn't know it was Anthony Daniels. But it was hilarious. It was funny. It was, I, I just loved it. And I, I'm, my eyes are popping out of my head. You know, light swords and floating cars and robots. Oh, my God. I mean, believe me, it's not lost on a geek like me. I mean, in in the last one, when I was in the rancor hand, I mean, shades of Fay Ray, baby. I finally <laughs> got into a giant monster hand after all those years of reading about it in Famous Monsters magazine. I mean, it was really, for me, it was... It was a, a, a really a significant experience. I remember thinking I would come in, you know, because I've said George casts people that are so close to what he wants that he doesn't have to really go into a lot of in-depth directing. Sure. You know, he doesn't like to talk about subtext or because I would say, look, you know, I mean, remember running around the Death Star with uh, Carrie and Harrison, I'm saying. I can tell, you know, he's really hitting on her and it's bugging me, you know. Should I race? No, no, no. You're just focused on one thing. You know, you just try to get the princess back to the to the Falcon. That's all you care about. Don't 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 pay attention to that. So yeah, all right, but I don't like it. <laughs> so but uh, I mean it must have bent your brain a little bit that having read these magazines for so long. You're now on the cover of a lot of these magazines and a part of this. You're a part of the lore that you would have consumed if you hadn't gotten that part. Oh, absolutely. You still would have. You first pro- day, first show. I would say you're what you're probably. I'm going to take. I'm going to go on a limb and say I think you're the only cast member of Star Wars that, if you hadn't gotten it, would have gone to a Star Wars convention. Absolutely. Oh, of course. I mean, I went to the science fiction conventions before. I remember I was in college, and in this college newspaper, they announced at the Ambassador Hotel. It, uh, the, there was a little ad for a science fiction convention and it says, uh, films to be screened, Metropolis, Things to Come, M, all these movies that I'd read about in Famous Monsters, but who can see silent movies? I mean, uh, the golem they were showing. So I was drawn by the films mostly. And then, of course, I saw the comic book dealers, 10 dealers in the basement of the Ambassador. But I'm looking around <laughs> going, oh, my God, I had that one, I had that one. I mean, I sort of rediscovered all that stuff I loved as a kid. But... Uh, um, it's uh, I, I would I would be the one that would go, hey, you guys, look, I'm a mask on the back of a Kellogg's cornflakes or whatever. <laughs> the look on Harrison's face, the, the look of disgust and disdain. Well, he now, seems like a fun guy. Picture, you know, we can all see him rolling his eyes. <laughs> uh, you know, I will say this though, because I. <clears throat> uh, well, he's fun. I mean, he lets on that he's an old curmudgeon, but he's a lot. He's, I think it's half and half. I think he. I think he is half curmudgeon, half likes to play the comedy of being a curmudgeon. Exactly. I think it's and a mix. Also, it's a wonderful defense mechanism. You yeah. know, they say you know, uh, uh, you know, way back people didn't use deodorant because they used their odor as a barrier. Like, right. Yikes! Stay away from that guy. <laughs> Calamity Jane was apparently just you know you you couldn't get within five. Oh, years. I watched Deadwood. Yeah. There you go. But uh, uh, yeah, he's he's uh, he's he's more than meets the eye because I mean I, I think he 
he uh, sort of plays that to, uh, to, uh, to great effect. But I have to say that when I did the – moderated that panel for episode seven last year at the pre- – yeah, last summer at Comic-Con – he was different than I had ever seen him in any of those things before. He seemed very humbled by the experience. He seemed genuinely touched by the, all of it. Well, that's what surprises me because, I mean, look, when they said that they wanted us to come back and George said, look, if you don't want to come back, we're not going to kill you off. We just write you out or something. We're not going to recast or whatever. He didn't say we're not going to kill you off. Maybe they would have. But I was really – the major emotion was fear. I thought, look, we had a beginning, a middle, and end. Let's leave well enough alone, right? Uh, I, I was just frightened. I thought, oof, we're, you know, and then, you know, people can be brutal. I mean, some of the criticism leveled at the prequels was just beyond uh, comprehension. But in any case, I said, well, one thing that I can feel good about is I said this to my wife. I said, there's no way Harrison's going to do this. <laughs> and if, if it's not all of us, there's an out for me. Not that I wouldn't do it, but if he doesn't do it, it at least gives me an out if I decide not to. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of talking, you know, because I, I can't imagine not raising, rising to the challenge of it all, especially since it was so unexpected. But I was sure that he wouldn't do it because, I mean, he's – over the years, you get the feeling that he's sort of had it up to here with it, you know, and it, he, somehow that detracts from what he's established outside of that franchise. So maybe that's why he has disdain for it. Who knows? Everybody goes through phases, you know. There's – you know, people get fed up with all the over-merchandising and the over-commercialization. I totally get it. You know, I argue it's supply and demand, but at the same time, you know, when they're selling kids, you know – Everything from underoos to electric toothbrushes, you go, when's enough enough? I know, but I think uh, I think uh, uh, driving your plane into a golf course helps you appreciate <laughs> life a little bit more. Maybe, you know, like cause it seemed it was it was after the four that. most dreaded words over the phone. Hey, kid, let's go flying. <laughs> Actually, that's five. But still, I begged him. I said, Harrison, please, please never fly again unless it's green screen. Because, uh, you know, he is so lucky. You know, if he had not had that golf course, God knows where he would have landed. And it didn't deter him. He's totally, uh, you know, back to flying. And it's, you know, just something he likes to do. Now, just for fun, he, he, you know, if it, when he... He could have jumped. What an amazing opportunity to jump out of that plane crash and go, did you see a Titleist? <laughs> like, what a great – to, like, sit everyone playing golf would have been like, a fucking – you know, no one would have believed it. Harrison Ford just another crash landed plane to the golf course and he asked if he was playing a Titleist. And we were like, come on. Are you – And are one you of the meth? odds, one of the people playing golf was a doctor. Yeah. Oh, Who would amazing. have guessed? Exactly. Does he know about your impression? Uh, actually, I heard – he, he one time said – Hey, God, uh, it doesn't sound anything like me. Because, uh, I listen, I don't officially do Harrison Ford, per se. But what happened was, what, what happened was, I think I was on probably Oprah or something. And what I was trying to do was tell a story about how I learned by, you know, I only learn in stages what kind of movie it was, you know, like I say, from yeah. reading it to seeing the artwork and going to get my wardrobe and learning, you know, who's going to do what. And so uh, I had already been to Africa and done all the desert stuff. 
And then I came back to London and Harrison came over and we worked with him and we did the scene with Guinness and meeting him and Greedo and all that. And then Carrie came over, I remember. She, she was the last one over and we started doing all the stuff, rescuing her on the, on the, uh, on the Death Star. And one day I was saying uh, – and I was telling this story on a talk show. So like I say, I wasn't really uh, you know, trying to do an imitation of Harrison. I was just trying to uh, give an impression of, of his, his demeanor and, and how I learned how – he's so wise in a way. I really wish he would – in some ways he should be a director because he knows everybody's parts and, and he, he knows how he wants you to do your part. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but at one point uh, I was saying uh, – no, oh, wait a second, George. Isn't this this is after the trash compactor, isn't it? And he goes, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, my hair should be all like wet and all messed up with schmutz, and you know, I mean, it's all it, it looks too per." And Joy, Harrison Turner said, "Hey, kid, it ain't that kind of movie. <laughs> if people are looking at your hair, we're all in a lot of fucking trouble." <laughs> And it, a light bulb went off where I went, of course. Yeah, you, you know, you, you make it as realistic as you can. You make it, you try and deliver those those re, those absurd lines as sincerely as you can. But he's right. It's so stylized. It's so, it's a leap of faith. I mean, you, you don't have to. But that was a real turning point in me saying, yes, of course you're right. Yeah. Because he said, hey. If they're looking at your hair, we're all in a lot of trouble. And he couldn't have been more more right about that. Well, I saw it in the theater with my dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did not – one time, until you even just said that, it didn't occur to me. His hair should have been messed up because <laughs> yeah. of the trash compactor. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, that, that – you know, I, I admire these – you know, the fact that you could have seen it. You didn't know much about it, right, when you saw it? I knew it? nothing about it oh, because good. it was in a time – well, first of all, I was six. Right. And second of all, uh, it was – it was just a time where people didn't know everything right. about everything. Yeah, there wasn't that was social media. You didn't, you'd see a trailer for a movie, and the trailers were were overly expositional. This summer, a movie. What happens when you know? Like right. they were. You used to watch a trailer for that. Watch a trailer for like the Westworld movie. A robot. You know they explain they tell you the whole fucking much plot. Like, yeah, yeah. Because there was just no other. How else would people right. know what right. it is? And uh, and so I had no. I had no. Well, well, you know, part of the reason we couldn't really do a trailer is because the special effects weren't ready. Oh, so wow. they didn't know what to cut together. And uh, I was with Carrie in Westwood. Uh, it would have been, see, it opened the summer of 77. So this must have been in March or April of that year. And we heard a trailer was playing at one of this Westwood at the AVCO, one of the AVCO embassy theaters. I still, I know which one it is. I can see it in my head. I don't know the name of it, but uh, maybe the AVCO embassy. In any case, we went up to the box office. And of course, nobody knew who we were. We say, excuse me, we're two actors that are in this movie that you're showing a trailer for, <laughs> uh, Star Wars. And we'd really love to see the trailer, but we, you know, we don't really want to come see the movie. And she got the manager, and we told the manager, and believe it or not, he said, sure, come on in. Oh, that's great. You know, so, and that's all we were going to do. We were just going to watch the trailer. So we go and watch the trailer. Now, there's nobody that loves a, a good uh, – uh, I love guys in the audience that holler out something funny. They did a whole Seinfeld about yeah. it, you know. If you could land it just right. <laughs> and this guy did. He made he made a comment that was so funny and yet so frightening to us at the time because the uh the, the trailer was 
It was like a, they had to cover up the fact that they didn't have many special effects. <laughs> so they had this sort of heartbeat thing going, boom, 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 somewhere in space. It could already be happening. They're coming in too fast. Wee, 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 wee. Boom, 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 boom. They would cut from this, you know, to fantastic action. It was the Wookiee in the in the in the cockpit. You know, already a dog man with headphones on. <laughs> you, you know, it's not two thousand one, right? Uh, so, uh, but then they would cut back to cover up the fact that they didn't have a lot to show with this that this voice and that boom, 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 and the the conclusion was. A billion light years in the making, and it's coming to your galaxy this summer. And there was a big explosion. And with perfect timing, after the guy says, and it's coming to your galaxy this summer, the guy goes, yeah, and it's coming to the late show about six weeks after that. <laughs> well, he's, I mean, he got a huge laugh out of me because it was so perfectly timed, so funny. And then I thought about the implications. Ooh, it's a really crappy well, movie. Well, I hope you found that guy after the movie. He was like, hey, shitbag, huh? Who's no, at the late no. show now? No, no, no. All right, good. Yeah, I mean, look, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. Because I have people come up to me and say, I have to apologize. I really don't like Star Wars. Like, I'm going to take it personally. Well, like, like, why would anyone have to come up to you and say that? Like, this is what, what you go, know, like, the, the, the synapses that fire in people's brains. Like, you know, that's Mark Hamill, and I think I'm just going to have to go up and be honest <laughs> with him about this. He, he Mr. Hamill, it. you were terrible you in were the ter- picture. I don't appreciate I what really you do. I don't like Was not role. a fan and at I all. And I don't see the appeal, quite frankly. I just frankly. feel like this. This young boy's hair would have been more messed up after the trash compactor. <laughs> and that ruined it for me. Ruined it. it took me completely out of the picture. I never came back. Now, Aunt Baru's Blue Milk. <laughs> I would love to get the recipe. That's a movie I would watch. Uh, I don't know why people feel like they got to, you know, it's like, hey, I, get, I think sometimes people said they go, you know, a guy like this, people are always uh, stroking his ego. He needs yeah. someone to keep it real. Yeah, let's hey, level man. this guy. Hey, man. <laughs> Yeah. I, let me just drag you down a few notches. Was not a fan. <laughs> Apparently, you're in a movie. I didn't see it. Yeah, I don't like I don't from what see I've movies. Heard. I don't like them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just it's just funny what, it, like, watching people's brains fire off in specific directions where you go, yeah, that you were compelled to do that for Or they a just apologize and say, I haven't seen it. They don't say they didn't like it. Right. They just say, ooh, I'm sorry, I haven't seen it. But I, you know. Like you're going to go, how dare you? Oh, you're the one. You'll get her out of here. Guard. Guards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. But I, I do have to, I I have the embarrassed, I'm embarrassed, I wasn't going to bring it up, but I have to. because This is my apology to you. Because, and I hope you never got this email, but I got married in August. And we, someone and I thought I had had your email from when we were pitching the show, but I didn't. So someone said, oh, Mark has an email that you can send requests to. And it was only because I was getting married. But we had uh, – R5D4 was our ring bearer. In the, the, the little one that, get, that blows his gasket at the right. beginning. Okay. <laughs> really? Yes. You, where did you get a replica of him? I found a guy. Found a guy. Okay. And uh, so – it's a guy that we had worked with at Nerdist before that had an R2 unit in or had 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 this R5 unit in because I wrote a song about R5-D4 because he's one of my favorite characters specifically because he's the almost famous yes. of the Star Wars universe. He's the Pete Best of the Star yes. Wars universe. He dro- dr- like he's just about to be the guy right. and then he drops the ball. And I always empathize with that because I always feel like yeah. that guy. It's like, oh, he was so close and then he yeah. tripped over. 
Now, a non-canon story. Peter David wrote this non-canon story about R five D four is Skippy the Jedi, and he actually what create a novel. Peter David did yes. Oh, okay, uh, not a novel. I think it was just a side story, but it, I think it was not in, canon in comics in, or in a com- it was like a comic. It was okay. like a and so he, he's very good. And and it was just basically that Skippy the Jedi droid actually he had a purpose and it was to bring them all together. It, it, it just gave a like a funny backstory. So. I came up with this gag. Going, okay, we're going to have R5-D4. is going to be the ring bearer. He's going to come two-thirds of the way down the aisle. He's going to break down. Jawas are going to jump out. I have to wrestle the ring back away from them. They take him away. So I, <laughs> so I emailed you, and I said, listen, please forgive what I'm going to ask you. I know everyone asked you to do this shit. Would you – and I'm asking you to be a guest of the wedding. Please, not just a prop in the wedding. Would you come out and uh, you know say oh, we guys got a bad motivator or what you know? And Where was this? Where did you get married? In Pasadena, we oh. got married at the Langham, and uh, and so I sent this email out and I am instantly regretted it. I really oh. wish there was a return. Feature. I think uh, this rings a bell, but I think what happened was by the time I became aware of it, it was too late. It was too late. Yeah, it was too late. So I so but <clears throat> I. Because I don't. How long have you been married, by the way? Since August. Yeah, three just, oh, yeah just since, since August. past okay. August. Yeah. And they said it wouldn't last. Yeah, they said it wouldn't last. I know. Well, we're in counseling, so we're trying to work it out. <laughs> is she in show it. business? She is. Yeah, she's she's a she's an actor. She does acting stuff, and she was, uh, uh, and she has a very fascinating family history. She which, does acting stuff. She does acting stuff. Is that the technical she term? She does for acting it? stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does she do? Does she do voiceovers and animation? She does and not stuff? do voiceovers and animation. Yeah. I wish she did. Uh, but well, she, she'll find it. She'll find it herself. I, it took me – look how long it took me to get into voiceover. I didn't do Joker till I'd been in the business for 22 years. And it's the defining Joker. <clears throat> well, I don't know about that. But, I mean, I did one animated series when I was still on a soap opera called Genie, which is the animated version of I Dream of Genie. Yep. In fact, in Sarah T, to come full circle, Larry Hagman was in it. He was hilarious, this man. And uh, uh, so unlike his characters that you saw him on television, unlike Jr., unlike I Dream of Genie, and uh, uh, just a, a hilarious guy. And now I forgot why I brought him up. You what said you did this animated series. You said, Sarah oh, T. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I had to tell him. I said, hey, guess what, Larry? I'm the teenage version of you in a cartoon. You should have seen. He was the first time I... <laughs> He was speechless in his life because, I mean, this guy was hilarious. He had commandeered the, uh, the, the secretary's desk when I – first day of the, for the read-through. And uh, when the guard called up and says, Mark Hamill's here, he goes, Mark Hamill never heard of him. Get rid of him. <laughs> so, I mean, he was the king of practical jokes. Is he still alive or did he did No, he, he passed, he passed but, away. But what a character. I mean, he had uh, – I mean, he had a geodesic dome in the top of his van and a hammock, and he put me in the hammock and put on Gimme Shelter, the stones, with surround sound like you've never heard before. I mean, this guy was wacky. I thought, wow, to achieve that where you just don't care anymore. Okay, Mark, I'm going to show you a doll, and I want you to point to the doll where Larry Hagman... (laughs) Well, you know what he did was he drove... He goes, he says, where are you going? I said, well, I got to go on set, which was outside. We were shooting in the valley out in the middle of the street. He drove the van and maneuvered it so he drove up. And when you opened the door, you stepped out of the van. I was on my mark. I mean, (laughs) people were running and pulling equipment out of the way, chairs out of the way. He was just driving through. I thought, now that's a guy. But he's been through it all. He was telling me about how Dream of Genie, uh, he said, I mean, I I had a nervous breakdown. He said it was so awful. 
He said, the people were nice, but I knew I was doing, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And he said, I, I, I just lost it. I was on the floor of my psychiatrist's offer, office. I was drooling. I wet my pants. I was just a mess. He said, my doctor just threw a towel at me. He said, clean yourself up. And when you can, uh, when you can clean yourself up, I'll talk to you. Oh, wow. Then, I said, wow. I know. He was saying, he said, I, you know, I, I really lost my, nearly lost my mind. I said, uh, when in the in the series did this happen? He goes about sixteen episodes into oh. season one. Wow! Oh <laughs> my know, god! Because it ran for five or six years. That's so crazy that. And again, you know, it's just that idea of uh, what do you want? What do you want to do? Well, well, he's really good in the show. His timing is. I mean, he's, he's expert comedian, you know, and straight man and so forth. And Bill Daly, he said, was great. And Barbara Eden was fine. All the actors and so forth. I think he wanted, he was Mary Martin's son. She was Peter Pan and she was like one of the icons of American musical theater. So I think in a way he felt like he had let his mother down. He should have done, who knows? Some actors get into the business and think they're going to do Shakespeare. I remember I was on a soap opera and this actor, I still remember his name, I won't mention it, but he came up to me because I, you know, I was happy-go-lucky, I was, what, 18, 19, having the time of my life, you know. And at one time he goes, well, you know, you should enjoy yourself, Ham. And I said, why? Because because in 10 years, you're going to look like an old kid. <laughs> oh, Jesus You're going to be pushing 30, and you still look like a teenager, but you're going to be a teenager with crow's feet, and it'll be all over, so save your money. And I thought... And I didn't want to show him that it really got to me when I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, cross that bridge when I get to it. But I thought, wow, what a thing to say to somebody. Because I think it was he wanted to bring me down in the sense that I was having too much fun. Right. And I was too carefree for his liking or whatever. And uh, so the fact that I'm still going, doing all these things that I love, whether it's cartoons or comic books or pop culture quests, you just it's like pinch me. I couldn't believe it. I mean things keep coming back. I never thought I'd go back and do the flash twenty years later. Oh, you're I, so great on the flash. Too. I never thought I'd do the Wing Commander, the Chris Roberts yeah. game. He called me up. He said, we, I said, Are you doing Wing Commander again? He goes, Well, we can't call it Wing Commander, but it's 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 a new version. It's called Star Citizen and it's what a cast. It's Gary Oldman and Ben Mendelssohn from Squadron uh, Rogue, uh, Rogue One. Uh, um, uh, Jack Houston. It's just a great cast. Uh, and and we got along so well. And then, but with games, you know, it's not like you read a script and, you know, plot it all day. You just can't do it. It's just too complicated. He's like my guru. He's my seeing eye dog, and I trust him implicitly. So I said, look, if you want me back, I'm coming back. Uh, uh, but again, and who knew? Who would ever expect? When they called me about The Flash, I said, well, John Wesley Shipp and I are basically the same age. He's in prison on the show, wrongly accused of his wife's murder. So since he's a contemporary of mine, I'll be a cellmate. I'll be the prison warden. I'll be who knows? And who, who do they want me to play? They want you to play the trickster again. <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? It was dangerous trying to get into that One Piece unitard 20 years ago, much less now. I mean, I, let's make it age appropriate. I don't want to make a complete fool of myself. But yeah, I'll tell you, Andrew Kreisberg and Greg Berlanti are the guys that are the brains behind that show. And they're so smart. 
I mean, even because I was watching the show before they asked me to come back just because I like John and I want to see how they used him. And I thought, job, this show really grabs you from the start. I mean, I love The Flash. I think it's well, they're so smart in the storytelling to have the uh, at least at the time have the father wrongly accused. It's a hook that, you know, it it compels you to come back week after week. We didn't have that in the the, the 90s. Flash were standalone. So, uh uh, yeah, it's really smart storytelling. I mean, you get to do – I mean, it is – you have – not only are you a part of uh, – <laughs> you make, ner- like, the nerd experience better for people, you know, interacting with people. You're the perfect person to do what you do. But you're also such a part of it, you know? And it, I think it's just such – it's so gratifying – you know, because when people reject, you know, whoever it is, Harrison or whoever, when they, I mean, you under, yeah, I can understand. It's like, okay, they get the whole But when someone actually legitimately embraces it and goes, yeah. hey, I can't believe I get to do all this crazy fun <laughs> stuff, that makes it so much better for yeah, the yeah. audience because you know, like, hey, I would love it if I got to do that. And yeah. he's just, he's basically just me and he's, do, but he's doing that. Well, and the thing is, like when I was doing Batman, Kevin Conroy never read a, a Batman comic book in his life. And he, and you don't have to have that background. It, it makes it a richer experience if you do. But you know, he wasn't a comic book guy. I mean, uh, the the fact that I knew all this stuff because when I first did Batman, they didn't give me Joker. They gave me a part because I said I really want to be on the show, and they let me be in the Mister Freeze episode, Heart of Ice. But I went in with my nerd flag flying, and I knew. I said, "Are you going to do Russia Ghoul? Are you going to do Hugo Strange? Are you going to do episodes where there's no villain?" You know. So I was all over the place, and they, they were like, whoa, you know, you've got the part. Relax. Uh, and then later they asked, do you want to audition for Joker? And I'll have to tell you, one of the reasons I, I talked earlier about being needy or showing your, your, your uh, wanting the part, I went in knowing that it would be a public relations nightmare for them to cast the guy who played Luke Skywalker is the Joker. They just couldn't do it. Remember what happened with Michael Keaton before everyone saw how wonderful he was? Right. They just flipped out. Oh, my God, he can play the Riddler, but he can't play the Batman. He's, right. he's Michael Keaton. So I was, you know, what, what, what I'm saying to you is that I went in really relaxed because I said, I know I can't get this. So because of that, I'm going to make them really regret that they can't. Yes. And I was really relaxed. I'd just come off about a, about nine months in Amadeus where Mozart, one of his characteristics is he has this ghastly laugh that takes everybody aback. <laughs> exactly. So, But you can play with that. You can't play with the dialogue. But doing eight a week, I'd play with the laugh. I get notes from the stage manager saying it's getting a little Jerry Lewis tonight. <laughs> so I did, okay, dial it Salieri! Yeah, no, no, but I would play with the laugh because all it had to do was startle people. Well, you know, uh, Peter Schaffer described it to me as sort of a donkey's bray. It was meant to be like just a real contrast with the celestial music he's writing. And all I'm saying is I had this arsenal of great laughs. And in retrospect, when I asked the people, how did I book it later? They said, oh, it was your laugh. When we heard your laugh, you you were there. Because they had already cast another actor and they'd already animated seven shows. I had to dub those. And then we went on to the original shows. But, well, like I say, I'm pulling out of the parking lot going, ha! 
that's the best Joker they're ever going to hear. Too bad they can't hire me. And I was sure that they couldn't. And I was very cocky. And then when my agent said, you got it, I was just paralyzed with fear. I said, oh, no, I can't do this. It's too high profile. I said, yeah, I wanted to be a villain, but I wanted to be Two-Face or Clayface or somebody that nobody had ever seen before. I can't be Joker. It's too high profile. I mean, because everybody has an expectation of how he's supposed to sound. I said, it's really awful. Uh, I, I said at first, let's have no billing, like Karloff in Frankenstein, the 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 creature question mark. As I said, if it gets out in the zeitgeist that I'm in the in the press or something, they're going to be predisposed to hate it. It all turned out all right, but like I say, I was terrified because I thought, ooh, I don't even remember what I did anymore. Now, of course, they I realize they have reference tapes, but I'm driving to the first recording, going, I don't even remember what I did in my audition. I'll be terrible. So, well, this is why. This was the one shred of why I didn't feel quite as self-conscious about asking you that about the wedding. Because I'm like, because I think I even said, if anyone will no, understand no, why no, I'm I... asking this, you will understand. And if it weren't my wedding, I wouldn't ask. So no, I... no. I mean, the thing is, when I finally became aware of it, I mean, what happened was I have a personal account that I have like... I don't want to say I'm over there, but I have several to, you know, for people, for charity and for people that ask me. I don't know where it came up, but by the time I got it, I go, oh, I missed it. I just want to I think. would have done it in a heartbeat. Oh, that is so sweet to hear, and I appreciate that, and I feel, I feel. Would you have made me wear the costume? No, no. I would have. I How would, would they said, know it was me? I would have said, well, here's the costume. You yeah. don't have to wear it. <laughs> Oh, that's the way you would have shamed me into wearing it. No. You know what? You know, one time uh, they asked me to be on Saturday Night Live, not to host, to be in one sketch, which could have been cut, but I made it to air. It was Sting was hosting. And the sketch was like a home shopping network that was Star Wars themed. So they show all these items, they pan down, and it's me in handcuffs, you know, mouthing, me, you know, and a 1-800 number, whatever, below. And I thought, okay, that's funny. as a sense of humor. It's the first time I'd been... Back in the outfit since the original films and since it was – I can't even remember how long ago it was. But it, it wasn't so long after the original films that I looked ridiculous. You know, I sort of you know, looked fairly like I did uh, in the films. But in any case, I thought, oh, that's funny. Cut to six months later, I'm in at home watching Comedy Central where they have the syndicated cut down to one hour episodes. Yeah. There's a home shopping network selling all Beatles memorabilia. They pan down. It's Ringo Starr in handcuffs. They changed it for the... But I had come after. In other words, this was an episode they'd done years before. Oh, gotcha. Later, when I was explaining to the people at 30 Rock why I didn't want to do the cameo they were asking me to do, I told that story. And they said, oh, that's typical. No, it was Kyle Mooney told me this. He said, oh, that's typical. We, you know, after three or four years, we just figure, you know, there's a whole new audience out there. So recycling material is not that unusual. But, no, the, the Ringo came first. But it was the same idea. Uh, I had but, no uh, idea. In general, I go, you know, if the only reason they want me to do it is because of Star Wars, I probably shouldn't. But I was really interested in Saturday Night Live. I mean, I had watched it from the very first show with George Carlin. And I... I wanted to see how it worked. You know, I wanted to be an observer on set. And it was the best way to do it because I didn't have the burden of being the host and having to be. And he was also the musical guest. So I was only in one sketch. And as they told me, Lorne might cut it between dress and air because if it doesn't work, he'll cut it. Right. And then you won't be on the show. And I said, that's okay with me. In fact, either way, I'm good because the only reason I wanted to do it was just to be on set and see how – 
that show. Studio uh, 8H. Yeah. And boy, I'll tell you, I wouldn't, I mean, in, in many ways for comedians, that would be the gig to get. But it's so competitive and it's so, you know, everybody's jockeying for position. And, yeah, it doesn't sound fun to me anymore. It, when I was young, it sounded fun because yeah, I was obsessed with yeah, the show. But yeah, as I, I got older, too. I'm like, it feels like it mm, kind of feels a little toxic. And they they work so hard. Yeah. And, I mean, they, they go to the Saturday night party and they leave at dawn on Sunday morning. And I think they come in Monday late afternoon or at least Tuesday at the earliest. And it just goes on and on. I said, I don't know how these people do this week after week after week. No wonder so many of them have crack-ups. A 90-minute show, every, a live 90-minute show. Can you imagine? Crazy. Yeah. But I should, we should tell people... Well, first of all, <clears throat> so when this is done, I'm going to give you my email. If oh, you want to come over and see the collections. <laughs> uh, and I'll tell you, you can totally cut this out. I was really sorry I lost you because, you know, when I was pitching this show, I, I, w- w- during pitches, I said... Chris is a better host for this than I am. Oh, come on. I would I would I would be perfectly happy to be a producer and let Chris host this. Oh my god, stop. Seriously. It. In fact, one of the reasons I came up with that puppet, I'm 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 trying to uh maneuver into cuz I said, should we have like a really sexy 22-year-old girl co-host? My wife said, "No." Uh, I said, "Okay. But how about if I want to get a Mr. Wizard kind of vibe going. Mm-hmm. We should have some like kid from the neighborhood who's like an uber collector, wide-eyed and innocent. And 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 I said we could find an actor. I'd like to find a real kid, but we'd probably be smarter to get somebody that is already predisposed to be in the business and so forth. But then when you started getting into shooting hours and the erratic schedule and all that, I said, well, we're going to have to build a kid. We can't have a real kid. We'll just build a kid. And Dan Marino from uh, Greg the Bunny and Warren the Ape came on for us, and, and and we're very happy. But at the time, I said, we've got to have a devil, and, you know, the devil's here and the angel's here. So I want to have a real innocent wide eye. Golly, that must be worth a lot. You know, my uncle said that, you know, I want a guy like that. But I wanted, like, a real cynical, hey, kid, come here. I wanted uh, one of those dealers that couldn't care less. <laughs> about the items you know puff puff yeah just the meanest i mean a lot of those guys because i mean they're based on real people i know but they they have encyclopedic knowledge i mean they can tell you that's uh, issue 184 it's the headlights cover 1954 steranko art they know everything you know uh and I wanted – I thought we should have the yin, the yang. We should have the young, innocent kid. We should have the, the culture vulture, the guy who just has disdain for the fans. I said it's kind of been done with a comic book guy to a certain extent on Simpsons, but there's so many different types of those guys. The trouble is budget-wise. They said you have to pick one. And I agonized because I thought, well, if I pick the cynical guy, that puts me in the position of being the young – bright-eyed, innocent guy, and it's, you know, I want it to be age-appropriate. And plus, it's pretty cynical. Let's go with optimism. Maybe if we do more, we'll, we'll get the, the cynic in there, but we went with the optimistic young young character so that I could be the wizened old man that I've uh, grown into. <laughs> Did the show pretty much stay intact from the, what we were pitching at the time, which was you, like, finding stuff for collections? And- it, to a certain extent. I mean, uh, we were also, we're still even trying to find ourselves. I mean, I said, do we ever talk about value here? No, that's sort of Antiques Roadshow. Um, I sort of wanted to have lots of eye candy. I wanted to have, I love cereal box art. 
I love comic book ad art. You know the, uh, you know, throw your voice yeah. and three uh, D glasses. Yeah, all those. Yeah, I mean, there's a book of nothing but that. I thought, you know, I'd love to. You know, a lot of it has to do with the just the, you know, the logistics and the budget and not being able to to uh, make it as sort of phantasmagorical as I'd like. Very yellow submarine-ish. I wanted to have lots of visuals, you know, going by like those X-ray specs, you know, with the silhouette of the woman in the dress and all that. Um, I also thought at one point, I thought Dan, the guy who operated, when we were still thinking of doing the culture vulture, I said, we should do a pass on this after the fact, like Mystery Science (laughs) Theater 3000, where we just criticize everything and I thought well that's tricky too because then you're putting the people that are the collectors I don't want to ever make fun of them I don't I you know I I, that's not my intent I just thought it would be fun to be uh, it's sort of like hedging your bets because I thought you know after doing a show we should like it'll be like a, a almost like a DVD commentary where we criticize ourselves. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, but is everything's a work in progress. You know, this was sort of an experiment. We did 10 episodes. I'm happy we, we got them done. I mean, I, I, uh, I, we'll just have to wait and see uh, what happens. But I don't think it should ever be any one thing. I, I think every, every episode should maybe have an identity of its own. So this is uh, this is on Comic Con HQ. Yeah, and uh, and people can go there and subscribe and and watch the show. I have talking points because the thing is, for the most part, <laughs> this is to the delight of, his, of Chris's producer. I see, but Mark, Mark Hamill is, reaches into as well. The thing is, I mean, oh, Katie's I just, probably. I'm mean, going to tell you something. What Katie's doing right now probably involves fantasy sports. Is that right? So, are you on some sort of fantasy sports or are you site right now? Solitaire. Are you on a fantasy sports site right now, Katie? God, I knew it! I knew it! I knew Oh, I'm so sorry. I forget there's a sweet. There's all these notes, but the thing is, I I just go where they tell me to go. And I mean, I got so far along where I didn't even know this wasn't on television until the last minute. Pop Culture Quest airs every Tuesday on Comic-Con HQ. Pop Culture Quest is a docu-style series featuring authentic and inspirational stories surrounding the most impressive, awe-inspiring, and historic pop culture collections in the world. I travel inside pop culture's vaults to uncover why we are so fascinated with collecting what our uh, collections say about us. I've been a collector all my life and have been collecting comic books, toys, lunchboxes. All right, that's enough. But you did great telling where and where to see it because, like I say, I had no idea. I said, what channel is this on? Oh, actually, this is on Comic H2. I said, yeah, but what number on the satellite? They go, oh, it's not on satellite. (laughs) And and if you're international, it's on Steam. It is? Which is which is great, yeah. What's who knows what Steam is? Steam is a huge gaming community. It's oh. a, it's, a Vol- it's Valve. It's Valve's like indie Talk gaming about community. Huge gaming community. When Chris Roberts called me up, he said, uh, do you want to come back and do more Because uh, the, the this video game now, it's not like Wing Commander. You can fly to different planets and it, it's just it's the technology is so far advanced from what we did. Uh, but he said I'm raising money online. And I've, I'm sort of familiar with Kickstarter and so forth. And I said, how much have you raised? And at the time, he's, since it's more, but at the time he said, oh, $120 million. $120 million online? I'm trying to get like $8 million to do Black Pearl. I mean, what? what's going on? <laughs> the thing is, he has such a passionate following with his, these gamers are very loyal. If they like what you do, they're there for you. And boy... 
I mean, I was shocked. Like I say, it's gone up since then. But I just, I mean, I practically dropped the phone. I, I was expecting him to say, you know, we've got 11 million. Well, you, should tell, you should tell people know that you want to raise $8 million to do Black Pearl. Well, I mean, I do and I don't because I thought, you know, I, I pitched it in the traditional way. And I thought, if I can't sell this in a traditional way, especially on something that's less than $10 million, would I really want to ask fans to send their money? I mean, I wanted to see if I could sell it in a traditional way, and we'll, we'll just see. All right. Well, Pop Culture Quest uh, is com- is available at Comic-Con HQ. Thank you for having me. It's, all, it's a pleasure. Interest. And like I said, I'm going to give you uh, – you, and you can come to the house, and you can see collections. And <laughs> um, I feel like – I don't know why. Well, I should give you my actual email address that yes. I go to every yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. That'd be great. Things go through this one over here. No, yeah, that'd be fine. And uh, and uh... (laughs) I don't really remember now. Um, It was so long ago. Yeah, not only that, but we've been we haven't (laughs) been in our homes for. I mean, I got back. uh, uh, We've been gone for a long, 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 long time. Let me put it that way. People say, "Do you have a big part in episode 8? I said, "Well, I really can't." Even confirm I'm in episode eight. But what's an episode eight? We have to wait for eight. What's an episode? You should just go. What's an episode eight? Like you don't ever do. Millie's at eight. Millie's at eight. So, uh, so, so Luke Skywalker is Ray's father, is what you're confirming. No, listen, they. You will not believe. (laughs) I would believe the security around. I said, you guys, it's only a movie. I mean, we were we're wearing what they call security robes. From your trailer to the soundstage. I said, this is ridiculous. I mean, there's a hood that goes over. You look like, you know, one of those monks where you can't see anything. And uh, I said, come on. But it's secure. They said, one word, drones. Yeah. And not only were they right, the drones flew over the back lot and shot sets and they went on the internet. Well, all just with Rogue One coming out, which was great. Did you see it yet? No, no spoilers, please. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I'll see it this I week. Today and I didn't. Oh, and I'm supposed to go later this week. And I, she's seen it. Sorry, you're out of the will. <laughs> no, it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, and they 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 printed on. You've seen this this dark red paper, you know, because you can't see. And even at that, they still leak. I said, how did all this stuff get out on seven? Because for the longest time, it was all I'd read it and laugh because it was so off. And one day, I read the whole first fifteen of the movie, fifteen minutes of the movie, absolutely accurately. And I called Lucasfilm and I said, "Have you seen that?" They said, "Yeah, we're aware." I said, "Are you going to nail that website?" They said, "Well, if we do, it'll just bring more attention to it, so we're going to ignore it." Well, about. Three to four weeks before the movie came out, I read from start to finish the entire movie. He oh. turns, removes it, his hood. It is Luke. She holds the lightsaber imploringly. Cut to end credit. I mean, every every beat was absolutely there. So I have a feeling that there's a mole, and I think sometimes they read it over the phone on lunch hour. I mean, because you can't photograph this paper doesn't. It's impo- with that many people working on a production, it is impossible that one person is. It's not- really a shame because I don't like spoilers. You know, I I don't like. You talked about trailers where they lay everything out. You go, yeah. well, geez, you know, they've shown the entire movie yeah. except for the end credits. Uh, I just I- thought it was, you know, you know, making Yoda a Sith Lord in Rogue One was such a bold choice. No, I'm kidding. I'm just <laughs> fake spoilers. It was great though. I'm not going to say anything about the movie, but it no, was. Everyone seems to be really happy with it. And I'm thinking. And I've said before, they have such an opportunity here because 
these standalone films, since they're not collected and they uh, connected to a larger trilogy and they don't have to follow that three-act format, they can really establish their own identity. You're going to fall in love. If you already didn't love him, you will love Alan Tudyk in this movie. Yeah. He and like every, It's great. The movie's fun. It's, it's great. Yeah. But, uh, but it's funny that when this was coming out... And it looks like a gritty World War II film. In other words, the young Han Solo film, since he's a scoundrel and a womanizer and a gambler, it could be like Tom Jones or Maverick. It could have a really light-hearted c- comedic tone. You right. see, they can all establish their own identity. And since... Since uh, 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 they're, they're, they, they, since they're independent films, and after we finish this podcast, I want to tell you the a fi- the worst five word spoiler in the history of cinema uh, that <laughs> Gareth Edwards told me. Yeah, I will because he can't hear. I would really I, like to be surprised. I want to be surprised too. That's all. I could not believe it. First of all, I don't say can I come on set. I never visited the prequels. I said if George invites me, I'll come. And he never invited me. So I'm over there doing seven. At some point they say, oh, they're doing Rogue One. And Gar- Oh, is that what it was? Whatever. I was at Pinewood and someone said, oh, they're shooting Rogue One today. And Gareth would want to meet you. Do you want to meet him? I said, yeah, sure. Uh, it must have been in advance. Because I remember I wore the Godzilla t-shirt just to suck up to him. <laughs> nice yeah. Very nice. That, that, that sort of olive green one, which is really cool. But anyway... Uh, so if I'm invited, I'll go because you know unless I'm working on it, I don't want to feel like a, you know I'm a, you know in the way or anything. But uh, and I, uh, oh, I, I can't go any further. I'm going to have to tell the rest of the story off off. Uh, but I did say to him that 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 same thing. No, 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 no. That I that I said to you is that they. Uh, the, the, it's really exciting when you can do standalone films that don't have to really connect in a large way to the the movies you've already well, seen. Well, yes, and also it's characters that they don't have to be as precious about. It's like yeah. in a I think, you know, in episode 7 when uh when Han dies, I that's where I thought, "Oh, well Chewie's going to go into this crazy wookie rage that they've always teased like you don't want to upset him. Right. He's going to go into beast mode and right. you're going to see this ridiculous and he's going to rip people's spines." And then I realized, like, well, they can't do that because he's a beloved kid. Like, he can't be a he can't be that kind of a murderer. They right. couldn't do, you know, it'd be weird. Well, but- he could have done some whoop ass and some stormtroopers. That's a good idea, actually. My problem with that death was, I said, why does that? You know, what should happen? There's no character that really, besides Chewie, that has a real deep connection to him. So it's his his death doesn't have the resonance that it would have if Leia witnessed it or if Luke was rushing back to save him and was just not, you know, too late. Because I thought, as I was reading that, I said, oh, you know, she's trying to contact me. And in the earlier films, she could do it with the SP. Uh, And I said, I know that I'm not showing up till the end. I'll bet you I'll show up like Han coming back at the beginning of the first one to the Death Star. I'll show up in the last nine minutes, but I'll be just too late for to save Han, but I'll allow the new protagonist to succeed. Believe me, I didn't know it was just going to be a pivot and a hood, <laughs> hood removal. I mean, I trained twice a week for 50 weeks for that. I thought, great, well, though. I'm going to do something. You great. Well, okay. I just well, thought- not only that, but I mean, I lost all this weight, and then they put me in these robes. I said, I, no one even saw I could be Jabba the Hutt under you these robes. Just, you could have just like had a little side thigh, like just like just with the <laughs> robe. But I, just, but I just thought, okay, the Wookiee's and, eyes are going to turn red. Yeah. Like something is going to – he's going to flare yeah. up. And yeah, that would you know. be a good idea. But with these movies, they can actually break format. Well, they, they allude they to it, you know, about, about let the Wookiee win uh, – 
you know, uh, yes. did, did, did something about ripping people's arms out yes. of their sockets when they lose. It's one of the deleted scenes on, on Full Story. They rips, he rips off, he rips off, rips off someone's, it's a Simon Pegg's guy. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. That's not in the movie? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, so. I went to visit Simon and he's talking to me and I'm, of course, he's unrecognizable under all this stuff. But, but that's just, but but even just the, seeing the frenzy when Rogue One was about to come out. That Daisy Ridley just kind of mentioned, like, oh, I think it's obvious who Ray's father is, and everyone's like, well, that she's just confirmed. Yeah, she's and just confirmed. I clicked on that, and she, and there's no information. She there's just, no really information. She doesn't say. Well, All she, she says, like, gonna... oh, if you watch the movie, it's clear. And then everyone kind of. Uh... Yeah, you got to be really careful. I mean, I f- I forget that that you know everything you say is parsed within an inch of your life. You know, uh, um, uh, you know, because I I just offhandedly at some event said, yeah. Uh, I was talking about the movie wrapping. I said, "Yeah, three more weeks, and then I'm out of work." Lightheartedly referring to the end of the movie. I said, Whoa, he dies! Oh, yeah, shit, yeah, yeah. So uh, there's all of that stuff. Hey, I mean, you know, I think it's fine. It's just gives people stuff to talk about anyway. Yeah, Keep, keeps it alive. I love. In fact, I started teasing people on purpose. Like, you know, uh, what did I say? Uh, Happy birthday, John Boyega, who is sensational. <laughs> In episode seven, <laughs> typo or spoiler, you decide <laughs> just to drive them crazy. You know, now a lot of these things I'd always clear with the front office because they don't like you going rogue, not to uh, lay an obvious pun, be uh, but uh, <clears throat> you have to sort of clear it with the front office. But I, you know, I was telling Chelsea, my daughter, I say, What is dad humor? Because everyone's accusing me of dad humor. Because I said said to Ryan, I said, can I do this? And I told him what the joke was going to be. He goes, yeah, that's okay. And I I always always promo a tweet. I go, on a Thursday, I go, this Sunday night, 8 p.m. UK time, a first exclusive look at an episode 8 trailer. And then Saturday morning, you know, I do countdowns. Are you ready? And so, and I'm doing other tweets, but I try and build it up. I was a shameless attempt to try and build my followers. Because I said, I'm ashamed. I'm not a, I have to get over a million, you know, a million, you know, come on. So, uh, and of course, the joke was a, a photograph of my trailer when I revealed the picture. Yeah. I, well, a lot of people thought that was funny. A lot of people didn't think it was funny no, at all. No, the internet will prove <laughs> to said, you. Think it through. Would they let me show two years in advance a trailer for a movie that's still in production? Yeah, the internet – half the internet does not have a sense of, sense of humor that you would want it to have. I know. They just don't. You know, they take everything literally. Yeah. But well, uh, you're welcome back anytime. Thanks. Please, please come over to the house. And uh, I, it's so – I'm so glad that you continue to make cool stuff and you continue to work and that you finally got to do the Pop Culture Collector Show. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, come back. Come back next year when, when everything – when theoretically you might be involved in them, yeah, who knows if I mean, I'm in it? Uh, yeah, who knows? Yeah. Uh, would you? Uh, oh, I feel like we should end the podcast. With, yep. We always say enjoy your burrito at the end. I feel like uh, there's a real Har- Harrison Ford's never going to say enjoy your burrito. Could you have Harrison say enjoy your burrito at the end of the podcast? Hey, kid, enjoy your burrito. <laughs> Come on, Harrison. <laughs> Act like you're enjoying yourself, you know. Give it a little energy, for God's sakes. I didn't kill my wife. Can you, can you go? Up? Oh yeah, see that's it. when he turns it on, he can really go full tilt. Can you do full hair? Can you do full Harrison? I haven't. Not as not as good as you. That's for sure. Well, thanks, man. Well, say. get off my plane would be the line, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> get off my plane. I'm the president. 
Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.